Hello, you're listening to the Gary Cook Podcast, and today we are going to be reviewing uh, a few books that are out for the Christmas market. One is by a fellow called Bono, who you may have heard of, uh, a local lad, and he has a book out called Surrender, 40 Songs, One Story. And the other is a tome by Matthew Perry. Who is he? Uh, I hear you ask. Matthew Perry was Chandler Bing in Friends, the most successful program probably in the history of programs. Uh, and he has got uh, his uh, biography out, or autobiography, uh, Friends, Lovers, and the Big Terrible Thing. And I have read both of these books. Now, uh, because you probably don't really want to listen to me just talking uh, uh, and living inside my head, that you would have to listen to me talking about what's inside my head, I'm going to be discussing... Uh, this with a man who never talks, and that is Connor O'Hagan, my producer. Hi, Connor. Hi, Gary. You're a man of few words. Mm. So, yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm not, but in the context you're speaking of, yes, I'm a man of few words. So, the books. Yeah, I mean, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on both these books, uh, Gary, because I'm not a great reader or buyer of uh, biography, uh, still less autobiography, still less celebrity autobiography. <laughs> But these are both guys who I feel some kind of um, sort of a, a nostalgia for, I suppose. Um, I, I was a big fan of Friends. Um, I thought it was one of the great uh, TV productions, because I think Friends was an incredibly high-quality TV programme that ran for... Ten four, years. Think, yeah, 10, 11 seasons, something like that. And, um, and, just and is be being repeated yeah. uh, forever. And still makes me laugh out loud on the odd mm. occasion when I catch a rerun of it, um, you know, it, it, which is quite something. I, I, I think it was actually fantastic. And uh, Bono, uh, Stroke U2. Look, I'm, I was never a huge fan. I was a punk myself. So <clears throat> U2 were a bit too sincere for, for people like me. Um, but they were a great band, were and are a great band. And uh, certainly in the Irish context, uh, they are a major cultural institution pretty much uh, so i'm interested in both these i'm interested to hear what you uh, have to say okay. about them before i go out and spend my money well ask me ask away what is your first okay part? so look let's start with uh bono i don't know why but we will he's the local guy as you mm. say you know to ask what may sound like a really stupid question well may actually be a stupid question what's it about gary well it's um about bono Obviously, um, at a certain level, there's a picture of Bono on the cover there, the sort of 24, 25-year-old Bono. Uh, and it is um, an autobiography in that he wrote it, he penned it. Uh, it is a look at his life through their songs. Um, uh, it is uh, got 40 different YouTube song titles, and each one is a different chapter, which the blurb, uh, on the marketing spiel, on uh, surrender is a story of a remarkable life. He's lived the challenges he's faced, and the friends and family who have shaped and sustained him. Um, mm. He also says uh, that um, uh, I am still grappling with this most uh, humbling of commands uh, in the band, in my life, in my faith, as an activist. Surrender is the story of one pilgrim's lack of progress. Even reading that uh, suggests that this book is possibly dealing with a lot. Well, there's a couple of words in that passage you just read which really catch my ear as being um, maybe slightly incongruous in the context of a rock biography. They were Faith and Pilgrim, and I, <laughs> I have a feeling that's going to come into this, but um, pray continue. Um yeah, I mean, faith and uh, all that sort of stuff was very much part of U2's early early canon. Uh, and although, to be fair, they never really, they were never into organised religion and they never really beat people over the head with it, it was present in the, thematically in particularly the album. Yeah, and to be honest, that's, that put me off them at, at the time. I mean, I'm talking about back in the 80s, I guess. Yeah. Because, as I said, I was I was into the kind of like the harsh realities of punk and uh, these sort of spiritual reflections that go with um, professed uh, faith and Christianity, particularly. Um, I didn't really go for that musically, but I, I think actually it was more perceived on my part that actually mm. the religion wasn't really there terribly up front. It's just that it was commented on a lot. Yeah. 
I don't think they ever really went to bring that into the public domain, and they didn't. Um, I, I think Bono, I would suspect, knew that it was potentially divisive. They all did uh, and might kind of paint them in the wrong light. Um, but it clearly was present in the music. And in actual fact, there's a very funny story. This is quite well known about, about you two. They've told it quite a lot. But I think it was around 1981, around the time of October, just after the album or before the album released or whatever, uh, the four of them went to, or three of them, uh, Adam was agnostic, as he says himself, uh, went to Paul McGuinness in his house in Waterloo Road. And he lived in an apartment there and uh, said that their conflicts with their faith uh, and the music was just too much and they were going to have to um, stop doing the U2 thing, which Paul McGuinness was, uh, the manager, was utterly stunned by. Mm. And uh, apparently he's alleged to have said to uh, the band, okay, so how's God on contract law? Uh, we have hired people. We have got things in, uh, you could be sued type thing. There's nothing like it been put up to you that quickly uh, mm-hmm. uh, for you to go, oh, we don't believe in God that much. I think probably what Paul McGuinness said was something along the lines of get an effing grip, lads. <laughs> well, who knows what was actually said, but it was roughly in, in, that, in that territory. Um, and uh, there's a few interesting, there's a few interesting sort of exchanges with Paul McGuinness in the early in the early days when he got interested in the band, sort of '78, and they went to his, his flat in Waterloo Road, and um, yeah, Bono was looking for cheese, uh, looking for something in the fridge, as he, you do, yeah. as you do, and the only the only thing he could find was this rock hard lump of um, not cheddar, but. Uh, uh, Parmesan cheese. Life is full of disappointment. And and, and uh, one got the feeling again of a man in Paul McGuinness certainly who was totally, totally on it and into it and uh, very professional uh, and no nonsense in his attitude towards this. And they had a bit of a dispute with him about um, uh, about about his take, uh, how much money he was going to get out of uh, this, and so on. And uh, but they ended up going along with him and Paul McGuinness was probably the most important thing that happened I would say having a good manager who has got a very uh, can-do attitude uh, is everything and if you don't have that I can assure you your career will go precisely nowhere absolutely and of course uh, the uh, the time-honored adage is if it ain't broke don't fix it and for sure uh, the arrangement for which you two are famous i.e. the equal cut mm. including uh, Paul McGuinness as the fifth member of the of the band in effect has served them incredibly well, if only on the evidence that uh, they're still here and they're still recording and they're still performing. Absolutely. I think uh, that decision was made years ago and by Paul McGuinness, uh, or he, he suggested it. He said, this is the way you've got to work it because a band, a band will break up over money uh, quicker than they'll break up over anything. And uh, he's right. There is nothing like the divisiveness of you're getting more than me. Um, yeah. to create bad yeah, I think we need to talk to you about that <laughs> um, so yes and, and he, he talks about all, all of that, 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 that stuff the, the early part of the book is full of uh, stuff about his early life and, and that is in, in many respects where it's at its strongest he's very honest about it and candid and he's not remotely guarded he doesn't need to be guarded about it because you know, you can say things about your 17 or 16-year-old self that you mightn't want to say about your 36-year-old self. And I suppose one of the things that that would strike you maybe in advance of reading uh, an autobiography like this is that uh, possibly in unfortunate contrast with other uh, rock uh, biographies, you suspect that Bono really hasn't got that much to hide anyway. Well... In the way that sort of makes someone like Keith Richards interesting, for instance. Well, Keith Richards has got nothing to hide because he doesn't want to hide anything. And, Anymore. Uh, no. and he's, um, yeah. Uh, and even hiding the drugs was clearly too much for him at some point <laughs> in the past. So, Best um, thing about drugs. Um, but it's part of his cell. I think Bono, um, judging by the book and what's contained within the pages, uh, he's certainly talking about a certain kind of self, but it is not towards an all salacious rock biography. Um, I mean, he alludes to things, and it's quite clear what he's sort of alluding to. He talks about one point of famous uh, incident in U2's career when I think they were filming, uh, and 
zoo zoo tv tour zoomerang as it was called in australia and they were going to be doing um a, a live film their their show was going to be filmed live although uh, how else would you film anything actually unless you did it live mm-hmm. but uh and this was i think at the melbourne cricket ground it was either melbourne or sydney a modest venue a huge huge venue cameras uh director crew lights everything and this was going to be the sort of video as it was in those days for the show and adam as bono says went out and forgot to go to bed and i think it was that the was worst careless wasn't it yes worse for wear for and wasn't in a state to do the gig so um they they're then bass tech stuart morgan i think he was called uh played stood in uh and uh, yes, that was that was one of the rock and roll moments. That is a great rock and roll moment. Our ba- our bass player cannot play, <laughs> and you have to. I remember I saw that uh, video, and um, you'd never know that Adam wasn't there. He was there for the second night. Maybe. Well, that's the thing about bass players, isn't it? Let's face it. <laughs> so the rock and roll part uh, is is uh, is kind of covered with with, with Adam's uh, story. But the book is basically about the man himself. And, uh, well, that was going to be a fundamental question for you. How much is this book about Bono personally and how much is about U2? Um, a lot of it is not about U2. So if you're a U2 fan who's looking for a U2 sort of um, sequential uh, uh, review sort of thing, biography, you that you're go not going to get it. Yeah, I mean, it's documented... Eamon Duffy wrote a book, The Unforgettable Fire. Bill Flanagan wrote a book, the, Until the End of the World. Um, Neil McCormack wrote a book as well. It's all out there if you want to if you want to go and look at that. But this is Bono, and it goes from his early life uh, to up to to his U two career, and then into his activism. So the last third of it is about his activism, and it's at its strongest, I think, when he's talking very openly and honestly about things. And his growing up, for instance, is um, you, you really see he can write. And he writes really, really well. And you really kind of feel you're in the room with them. Now that is, you can't fake that stuff. Nobody can do that for you. You can't get an editor who can make you sound. I don't think he can. He's very definitely got his own voice. And you, you very definitely feel part of his life at that stage. Uh, like his mother died when he was 14 and she had a brain aneurysm. She collapsed at, I think, at the funeral of, of her father, Bono's grandfather. Uh, and she never was taken to hospital and she never recovered. So... You know, this was, it's heartbreaking to read it and to think, my goodness, he had to actually endure this as a 14-year-old boy. And then, of course, you know, he had a dad and a brother. And um, I know from coming from a made-only family that, you know, that can be a pretty combative and hostile place. Absolutely. And not men who couldn't cope with their grief or boys. He was only a boy. So I cannot imagine what that was like uh, for him. And I'm sure it changed him and changed the course of the, of the direction of his own kind of development as a human being. Uh, and then he went off and joined uh, U2, and, or I think the Larry Munnan Band, as it initially was, um, in September 1976, the same week he started going out with a woman who would become his wife. So uh, pretty eventful. He's still with the woman and he's still with the band. <laughs> it was. Nice going for him. I mean, I hope Ali feels the same. Yeah, I mean, he, he he says the book is for Ali, um, but he doesn't go into wild um, depth about about that other than to say it has not been easy keeping the marriage together for 40 years. And, and it isn't for anyone, uh, let alone when you're a rock star often, you know, touring around the world. And, mm. um, but it would appear that they have a pretty profound uh, bond and they're still together. And he's in, he's, he sounds like he's in total awe of her still, which is, which is pretty, pretty, um, it's, it's not deliberately Hollywood. I, I believe him. I absolutely do believe him when he says that. And it's, um, there's a kind of certain redemption quality. Well, I would always tend to assume with a biography like this, uh, I'm, I'm mixing biography and autobiography. I think autobiography is a subset of biography. Okay. I would tend to assume with a, a biography like this, a rock star who's been around for a long, long time and who is still married, that a, a lot of this is about, to use the phrase, keeping it together. Now, whether you're talking about his personal relationships or the band, mm. or indeed his personal relationships with the band, uh, that keeping it together is a big part of this. 
It is. I think he refers to it as God's glue, although um, uh, I, I think somebody else used that term as well. But God's glue? Yeah. Is that like Bostic? It's like a binding, a physically binding force in the world. Mm. Um, okay. And, uh, yes, he if, you, if he was sitting in my chair and you said that to him, he probably, I would say, would say that's not really what it's about. But the point is that reading between the lines, that is partially clearly what it's about. Uh, and um, I would say Bono, don't know the man, never met him. I would say he's extremely good at taking care of, of business. And mm-hmm. I would say of of just keeping the right side up. You know, He talks about playing with fire, um, but uh, it's when the fire is playing with you. So I'm sure he's a guy who's, you know, uh, played with fire in and the high octane world he's lived in, I'd say, is not an easy place to be in many respects. Well, I would but be keeping damn, it together, and I totally agree with you. Uh, I would be damn sure that Bono is, to coin a phrase, a complex person. I mean, you don't do what he's done and come the journey that he has come uh, without being complex. And I think that one of the one of the most irritating things about about uh, the his profile particularly in Ireland, I think, is that people oversimplify him. They say things like, oh, for God's sake, he's so pompous, you know, he's got a God complex mm. and all this kind mm. of thing. I think what they're, what they're largely talking about is the fact that he's a, an intelligent, complex person who has views and whose role in life and in society is to, to comment whether it's on himself or on things outside himself. That's what he does. So a Bono who had nothing to say about anything would be pretty meaningless, and yet people absolutely roundly curse him for having anything to say about anything. Yeah, um, he he does. He you know he's a big character, um, and uh, as you say, probably a pretty complex character, shaped to a degree by his his, his upbringing, as we all are. And uh, but but also I would say there was some part of him that was strangely formed when he came into being. I mean, I heard him on Dave Fanning, I remember, uh, in 1979, uh, when I, I'd become a fan, uh, talking about, uh, you know, getting the struggles of getting a record date and what, what they what they were having to do and so on and how they would go about it. But he sounded so sure of himself, so incredibly driven and fully formed. 19-year-olds don't sound like that, but he did. Uh, so I would suspect that there was very definitely um, a, a pretty unusual brain at work there. Also, people were not that confident in Ireland at that time, but he was. And to this day, I don't think I've ever known, I've, well, maybe one or two others who have that level of front and that level of confidence. Uh, so where that comes from, he doesn't really go into that uh, in the book. Um, but maybe that would just be a little bit too much of a of a of a kind of um, mental masturbation, as it were, uh, if he was trying to work out why he's so brave. <laughs> to, to use a Christmassy sort of word. <laughs> um, but um, very funny guy as well, and and it's it's uh, in the book you see it very early on, and uh, you know describing growing up and uh, you know combative relationship with his father when he's talked a lot about and uh, he was talked about in the songs and so on um but uh, he says that his father his father said about his faith he talked about the faith that it was the most interesting thing about him uh, or implying that it was possibly the only interesting I was thing say, about it's the him. implication more than the, more <laughs> yeah. than the statement itself isn't and uh, um by all accounts, Bono had an incredible knowledge of the Bible, very young. In fact, he references two, uh, there's 2003 something within the Bible. I can't quite remember what that is, but I remember, wow, he knows that. There's 2000. So, um, which speaks uh, for a an either, either a, a, a misspent or, or a well-spent youth. I'm not quite sure which, but. Yes, well, it's kind of like going down the snooker hole uh, type thing, um, uh, misspent youths, but. Bono's the kind of guy who might have been in the snooker hall and reading the Bible and being in U2 all at the same time. Yeah. That's the kind of multilateral... Kick sort of the bones out of that. Character. Well, that's the feeling I get. His descriptions in the book of his life grown up funny. They're really funny, you know. Tragic, but funny. I mean, talking about going home to an empty, an empty house after his mother died and eating uh, baked beans and Cadbury's smash 
which was pellets of powder that just had water. I remember. So, yeah. And they were, uh, th- th- there was a great ad, remember? It? And it was, then they smashed them all to bits. That's right, the aliens talking about how stupid human beings are, about how long they spend cooking, peeling potatoes and all that kind of stuff. And how right they were, yeah. Uh, yes, uh, so Bono was on the side of the aliens. And just the image, there's something <laughs> I'm sure very... has been said before. Yeah, well, it's just something very Bacatian about it and very funny, and you kind of thinking it's tragic comic, uh, really. And... Um, uh, but also, he just sounds like a kind of bloke who, if you'd met him, he'd have been, he'd have been a live wire to be around at a young age, you know. Absolutely, but there, there is a, a another fundamental question here. Um, is it a good read? I mean, you're saying it's well written. It's mm. it goes deep into into mm. Bono's um, upbringing, where he's from, what he's about, um, how he feels and has mm. felt about things. That's all great. That's the stuff of any good uh, autobiography. Is it a good read, though? It is a good read. I think if you're interested in Bono, it's a particularly good read. If you're interested in U2, it's a good read. Uh, And for the casual reader, I definitely think there's an awful lot in it. Now, it is quite long. It's 576 pages. It's okay. You can stop reading. You can. And the structure of it's good because it's not total sequential stuff. Uh, I mean, it, it roughly is, but it's also dealing with a lot of di- different themes uh, and so on, uh, and through. Okay, so it's more thematized than 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 chronological, perhaps. I would say it is. Yes, he does kind of go through it in a roughly chronological, but it's, mm-hmm. it kind of jumps all over the place uh, a bit. Uh, there's a few omissions that I thought I was kind of interested in Live Aid and how. He felt about that, looking back on it, um, because they were supposed to play three songs and he ended up playing two. He jumped off into the crowd, uh, which was an amazing moment. But what a song that was. I mean, as I may not have made clear enough uh, in this conversation, I'm not a huge fan of U2, but I certainly think they've had their moments. And that afternoon at Live Aid was, I mean, I think that, that performance was one of the most memorable few minutes of live performance that I've ever seen and you know it it is it was incredible it was absolutely unbelievable and it was probably the most exciting live bit of television I've virtually ever seen uh was your man going off uh going off on one and 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 being so far into it that he had to make it work it was and he did actually make it work and the way he jumped over you know, uh, part of the stage onto the lower sort of area, which I'm sure it probably will be illegal now. You wouldn't have insurance to do it, uh, and it was quite dangerous. But 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 you know, his the book is by the way populated with things that he did that were quite um, that were quite uh, physically dangerous on stage. You know, he he once climbed to the top of uh, uh, the stage, the canopy over a stage mm-hmm. at a festival called the U uh, the US Festival. Everyone thought it was the U.S. festival. It was a joke in The Simpsons, actually. It was actually called the US Festival in California in '83, and uh, he got on a what looked like a kind of a, a rope ladder, uh, and uh, went very high up at this big festival. He went incredibly high up, and how he was even allowed to do it was, even for the standards of the time, was unbelievable. But it was death-defying and incredible, and. Anybody who's willing to do that, I think, you know, that's just amazing. It's And it's not amazing because it's, oh, you know, because it's amazing. It's amazing because at so many different levels, it is just beyond anything that you can really comprehend. And I know from doing things a little bit less than that on stage, how easily it is to get carried away on stage mm-hmm. and how easily it would be to injure yourself. Um, although I've never gone to the point where I could have been killed. And that... Him being killed at gigs in around the war tour in America in 83, apparently, was a thing because he was climbing all over rigs and, uh, you know, endangering himself. So he has something about him, maybe something more about him than we than we thought. I think he is a truly instinctive warrior type. Um, Amy Dunphy, who wrote the book The Unforgettable Fire, refers to him as um, an animal. Uh, and by that he means he just throws himself in at a very, very instinctive level to things that he does. Uh, and I've never heard anybody else say that about him. Um, but uh, I, I think 
to do what he does, mm-hmm. he must be somebody who is propelled by some force that most normal people are not propelled by. Now, he'd say, just to go back to that, but he doesn't talk about Live Aid. All he talks about is that uh, he can't stand his mother's hairdo whenever he watches it. And he says a man shouldn't look like his hair has been ironed. Right. Now, I'd just be interested in what happened mm-hmm. after that. Did they have a bit of a confab? The band was there a bit of an argument? Be- because that must have been a you can see the band on, on the stage going, what are we doing here? Because they keep on playing the same kind of phrase over and over again. Yes, and yes. yet what was amazing about it is that it actually worked. Yeah, I mean, I must say my main thought was not uh, that day was not so much about his hair. My main thought was a man that shape shouldn't wear leather trousers. But you know, <laughs> he got away with it. What else is not in the book that I'm? I was interested in. Um, the musical Spider-Man, which was him, him and Edge did the yes. uh, music for that, and that kind of—I'd forgotten all about that. Yeah, That's interesting. Tanked. I was interested in in how he felt about that because he's been confronted with so few failures in his life, and I'm, I'm not saying it wasn't good or anything, but uh, or that it was a failure in, at any level, other than it, it didn't do what musicals uh, are supposed to do, which is you know pack them out. It was the technical aspects yeah, of it, as I recall. Twenty years, yeah. There were technical aspects. There was a whole load of things, but um, it was very high profile and all the rest of it. But how does how does a man like that deal with that kind of stuff? Mm-hmm. Uh, he also didn't talk about his accident in Central Park on a bike, uh, which seemed to seriously damage him and had a big um, big operation after that as well. Yeah. And at the beginning of the book, he talks about his uh, his heart aneurysm and the fact that he's on. The book opens up with him at a operating table, basically. Well, that's what I think. It, and he's he's kind of, kind of commenting on the harsh lights and the cold stainless steel kind of thing he's on and all the rest of it. Well, I suppose it's always a, it's always a sound tactic to grab your attention with the first paragraph. It is, and it's very funny, and he describes it in very funny ways. He doesn't tell me how he feels about it. He doesn't tell the reader, how, how he felt about his own mortality. And I would have been interested in that as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't think anyone likes it. Uh, I don't think anyone has uh, died laughing their head off yet. Um, and uh, so I can understand why you might want to go into it. But I would have been interested from a reader's perspective. His general moments-to-moment life, you don't quite see. It's not doesn't have the same probably psychological sort of self-assessment as somebody has said, I'm quoting somebody else here, um, as uh, some of the biographies do, including Springsteen. I think that's been been pointed out by somebody else. But he does question himself quite a lot. He questions his own, uh, his own motivations and reasons for doing things, particularly in relation to the activism. There's one, there's one chapter which was beautifully written uh, about being in a hospital in the long way in, Mal- in Malawi is full of AIDS patients who had no hope. So he was literally, in, you know, in the ward of the of the hopeless. Yeah. Uh, people who were shunned and left to die and two, three in a bed all over the place. And he describes the kind of resignation that they had in their eyes. Uh, and it wasn't anger, um, but it's very moving and it's very well written. And you can say, well, it's an exciting thing to report on, but, you know, you're still going to be able to write it. You're still going to be able to paint it. Oh, absolutely. It, and he but does I don't know quite why I say this, but I, I do kind of feel that's Bono territory. I, I think that if if Bono could, couldn't make something moving from that experience, then not many songwriters could. I, I... No, you're absolutely right. I mean, he's got a certain specialty. He's got a certain uh, ability um, in, in, in certain directions, and he does have the ability to really, really move people. But that's like that was always present in their live shows. You know, there was always one or two moments when you just went, Wow. <laughs> what just happened but I, I would recommend this book overall uh, I think it's very good um, when it's good it's great it's really great um, and it's just a little bit long but as you say you don't have to all read it in one go uh, I think you will see a lot about the person um, uh, and then some of it is kind of inferred as well, well uh, I suppose the acid test perhaps uh, is uh, does it have enough in it to appeal to the general reader? I mean, just 
if there was hypothetically such thing as uh, someone who didn't know anything about U2 or Bono uh, heretofore, uh, does it have enough in it to make it interesting to that person? Oh, definitely. It definitely does. Okay. Uh, it's, um, it is a very uh, thought-provoking uh, and enjoyable book, uh, unquestionably. I found large parts of it very engaging, very engaging. All right. Um, I think I will consider that a recommendation. Then. Yeah, I'd give it an 8 out of 10. Um, and uh, it's on the New York bestsellers times list. And, uh, well, it was always going to be, yeah. though, wasn't it, to be fair? The final thing to say on it is it's called Surrender. And in a sense, that is, I mean, he talks about this as being, a, uh, I think he says, uh, humbling, uh, a humble command that he finds kind of hard to... to he did say that, uh, yeah. yes. So uh, whether or not he is going to be able to do that, one doesn't know. And it's not quite clear, is this out of, for psychological reasons, or is this uh, for health reasons, or is it whatever? How is Bono going to stop being Bono? Personally, I don't think he should. I think he's come this far, you might as well go on. I think you have found my unasked question there, actually. (laughs) I, what uh, what intimations does it give us for the future? Um, Perhaps he has an awful lot on his plate and in his head. And he clearly feels a sense of duty because he talks about the other guys in the band and all that. And, you know, that all his activism is one side of it mm-hmm. and his music is another side. And he kind of says, uh, later on in the book, he says, yeah, you two remember them, you know, um, meaning I'm going on about me in my yeah, me more, yeah, yeah. as he describes it, um, uh, as if, you know, he's implying that he, he gets it, that, that people might think, He's forgotten about you two, but I don't think he has. And uh, he's um, yeah, it's not it's not flagged as a U two no. uh, biography. But he's he's still striving. I get the feeling he's still striving for whatever it is he is striving for. And I hate to get into the obvious joke. Yeah, has he found it? I don't know that he has. And uh, for Bono, it seems to be uh, all about all about the journey. He appears. He certainly appears to have a very exciting life and a very uh, un- understanding family. So, um, listen. Uh, my understanding of that book is that Bono has has it all ready, and uh, maybe that's a very hard thing for anybody to accept and to process. I'd like to find out. Onwards and upwards, or possibly not. Um, moving on to Matthew Perry, friends, lovers, and the big terrible thing. Um, I shall. Pause there to remind anybody who has just arrived on the Mars Express uh, that Matthew Perry was, it stroke is, the Chandler Bing character from Friends, which was an enormously successful, enormously long-running... Is. Is still. Uh, enormously loved, enormous, enormously uh, quoted and rehashed and remembered TV series from the 90s, 1994. For, I think to 2005, yeah. four or five, it yeah. ran. It ran, and um, as such, is an, a colossally successful actor, although basically in just the one part. Um, and he has had a well, whether you find it interesting or not is is, is one thing. He certainly has a, a remarkable story in in some particular ways. So mm. I'm gonna set you off then, Gary. Tell us about this book. Okay, this is. 250 pages long it's less than half uh, the length of Bono's book I can tell you it is a car crash um, and I don't mean um, that in a <laughs> in a good way <laughs> no, no, um, oh, there are good car crashes then are there yeah. um, we'll let that one pass uh, it is a, a shocking shocking book in many ridiculous I would suspect he's written it as a kind of redemption thing mm-hmm. Um, but it's very hard to see where the redemption actually is because, and the reason I say this is because this man uh, has taken more pills than uh, a slimming pill convention. He's Uh, been to hell and back and bought the season ticket. He certainly has. Uh, The book opens up on him talking about his addictions, and that is really the point of the book. It's called Friends, Lovers and the Big Terrible Thing. But it's really about the big terrible thing, which is his addiction to drugs, um, particularly prescription drugs, over-the-counter drugs, prescription drugs, 
uh, that are legal, but uh, not in the quantities that he was taking them. Legal um, but inadvisable, yeah. Yeah, he, the contraindications, I'd say there aren't even any <laughs> invented for yeah. how many. Yes. Um, but let, let's go back to the very beginning. Um, Matthew Perry came from a broken home, ultimately. Um, his father was an actor and his mother got a job working as a press uh, uh, officer for or PR for uh, Pierre Trudeau. The uh, Canadian uh, mm-hmm. Prime Minister. Really well. So, um, uh, and they stood up when he was nine months old. Uh, they were dropped off by the dad uh, to meet her, uh, her father somewhere near Niagara Falls. It all sounds quite tragic, really. And they drove off to the new life, and he drove off to uh, become an actor in, in in Los Angeles. He was apparently the guy in uh, a spice ad, Old Spice Aftershave. Mm. Uh, I mean, with, with that sort of, of I don't know, it, it, who wrote that music? It's. Um, I think it was a music that was used in the film Damien the Omen. That's right. Um, that's right. <laughs> um, <laughs> a demonic sounding chorus. Yeah, which, yeah. which kind of had uh, some implications uh, for this man. Uh, so he grew up in, in a, you know, it's not that his mother didn't love him, it's just that she was very young when she had him. Uh, she was on her own. She was... Well, they, I think they live with the, the grandparents, but uh, she was a young woman with a child who probably didn't give the child enough attention, according to him. He didn't get enough of her attention growing up. It's This is discussed in the book. Um, Do you get a bit of a downer on his mum? Is that what you're saying? No, I, I don't know. I don't at all. Uh, I'm probably not phrasing this very well. What I mean is he felt he didn't get enough attention from his own mother, mm-hmm. and that's what he says in the book. His individual He needs. was busy... And a single parent. Yeah. So, you know, I'm not being down on his mother uh, uh, at all. Now, Matthew Perry himself was a very good tennis player. And he went to L.A. in, like, when he was 15 mm-hmm. to try and make it as a tennis player. Uh, I think I get the feeling that he was a troubled kid in the house. And he describes a night before they left and it was, or before he left, and there was tears and rage everywhere and all the rest of it. And um, he went to LA, realised he was not going to make it as a tennis player because no matter, he was nationally ranked as a kid. I'm sure he was very good, but he wasn't good enough. Uh, And then he got into acting. And then he got into uh, the substance abuse started. By the time he was 19, he uh, knew that he had a serious problem with alcohol uh, and how it affected him and his desperate need to get more into him. And I've seen one or two people like that, the kinds of people who end up after a four-day binge drinking methylated spirits or something that kind of thing yeah. um and he's at that level of addiction some people just seem to have another tier of appetite which fortunately for us uh, the rest of us don't have or rarely really touch sure and this is what this book is largely about because you know the lovers are secondary as is friends I'd say friends comes in um, a third, some distance back. He doesn't really talk about friends very much. He talks about it a bit, but he doesn't go into it in any great uh, degree. What's amazing about it is that he spent, as he said himself, so much of friends recovering from nights out in the piss and all these drugs that he took to try and make himself feel normal. At one point, I think he said he was in 55 Viking in a day. Viking is a dog painkiller painkiller for canines um i think he was talking about ketamine he's talking about oxycontin ketamine being on the same theme a horse tranquilizer yeah um and oxycontin he talks about adivin there's more it, it sounds like a, a yeah. chemistry and oxycontin of course is, is a slayer of thousands in america yes um and uh, he talks about one stage his addiction was so bad that he when he was in a clinic in um Geneva, he was on 1,800 mils of OxyContin, which apparently is, like, that's knockout stuff. You kind of kill yourself at the, roughly at that level. Uh, and uh, so he wanted to go back to L.A., so he goes back to L.A., he hires a plane for $175,000, a private plane, and gets to the clinic in L.A., and they say, we are not giving you that amount of OxyContin. So what does he do? He says, right. I'm going to go straight back to the airport, get that plane again and spend another $175,000 getting back to Geneva where he gets his 1,800 mils of oxycontin. That's how 
addicted. So this is a life out of control. Yeah, well, the book is f- full of it. And as you're reading it, you're just going, oh, my God, please stay sober this time. But I know you don't. Uh, there's another amazing admission. This depravity of his, his addiction. He says, this is the guy who's making a million dollars a week. That's why he can afford the planes, okay? Yeah. And he says that he used to spend Sundays going to open houses in Hollywood or, you know, the LA area, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, these are houses on the market and anyone could book an appointment and go and have a look at them, right? Yeah. Um, uh, on Sunday after. And he went with the express purpose of seeing if any of these people had left behind pills that might be useful to him that he couldn't sort of get anywhere else, type thing, uh, just for his own private collection. Of Except possibly in Geneva. Yeah. In Geneva, yeah. So that's how, and you go from house to house. I mean, the guy from Friends, he is omnipotent anywhere in that he's in everybody's house all the time uh, in their living room and now he was he was actually in your house uh, looking for drugs so the poor guy you just end up I, I pray for the man this is interpreting what you just said he is describing a car crash uh, the car crash that is his life um, uh, blow by blow and from what you're saying you still like him uh, while you're reading this oh, yeah. enough to want it to stop yeah, is in other words, it's engaging you. It's a very engaging book. Yes, it's a good point. It is a very engaging book. Um, he uh, is. It's, it's hard to disengage from the man that you know from um, from friends. Well, that's another interesting point because uh, yes, of course, that's uh, that 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 is a point that you feel you know him because you've mm. seen so much yeah. of him as Chandler Bing. Um, but that begs the question: Do we really know him? How much? Is Matthew Perry Chandler Bing or vice versa? Well, he says that um, there's an awful lot of Chandler Bing uh, in him. Um, but that, again, is the character Chandler Bing uh, spending $175,000 on planes to and from Geneva to get drugs. Mm-hmm. Uh, that we'll never know. Um, but uh, I think he's a likeable guy anyway. And we've seen him on television, seen him interviewed. He's a vulnerable guy. Anybody who's at this level of addiction is just, you, you just want to wrap your arms around them and go, please. But it's quite clear that loads of people have tried to do that to him and he's tried to do it to himself. And it's only recently, uh, in 2021, I think that he's finally uh, sober. And it, so that makes it sound as though it's way too soon to be drawing a line under the, under the story. Well, absolutely. And I mean, at one point, it's quite curious thing in the book. He spends so much of it talking about his drug habits. And then towards the end of it, he says, well, you know, because between 2001 and now I am, I've been largely sober. And you're kind of going, hang on a sec. What is it? Largely sober, but not quite sober. And not quite sober means to him seems to mean that you could die at any moment. Yeah. Uh, I mean, he describes uh, taking eight Xanax when he was drinking a quart of vodka. Now, you're not supposed to drink on Xanax at all. And uh, one or the other would be, you know. Yeah, that's the one or the other. Uh, so he had eight of them. And that is apparently enough to, to end your respiratory activity uh, and your life. So there are other things apart from drugs. Uh, there are references to uh, lovers and friends. The lover is part of it is he has gone through uh, so many women and it seems to me to be another addiction of his and the one thing he can't do is commit to any of them uh, he has to break it off with them before they break it off with with, with him because of his fear of abandonment so and he talks about julia roberts who he was with at one point uh, and oh he's a whole lot of other people it it seems to be there was an endless uh, supply of women that he was in. And he used to go out and date and say, I'm just into dating. I don't want any of the emotional stuff. I just want sex and the crack God. and fun. Gary, um, this is almost more woe than I can stand. And I haven't even read the book. Uh, yeah. Um, and uh, so that was another. And, and one feels 
you describe some of the women as being in in absolute bits because I presume they couldn't help but you know whatever fall in love with him and then realize that he's not capable of that kind of thing and he still doesn't have a partner and he kind of laments all that. Um, uh, so that is that is another side of the book. Friends is uh, I suppose is what gives it a a slightly different dimension. Uh, there's a few things that are quite interesting about it, although he doesn't talk about his relationships with the people and friends that much other than to say is that they always got on pretty well. Um, certainly, but, the, certainly the image that's out there is that they, they do all get on and, and they did always get on. And um, Apparently, um, Courtney Cox is one who really drove that point home very early on that they needed... They needed to be friend, friends with each other. They couldn't really do this show mm. and, and be six different individuals who kind of... Well, I mean, certainly on screen, there was fabulous chemistry. There was, and I'm sure they're casting, they were cast for that reason, uh, as along with other reasons, but that was one of the big reasons, the chemistry, I suppose. Um, but uh, they, so they did, but he describes Friends like after the last episode of Friends, you know, he says, you know, the next day... Uh, or that they say goodbye to each other and they all sort of say, oh, we'll keep in touch with him, but they don't. And then he's straight back off to getting drugs. I mean, yeah. it is so far from your image of friends that it couldn't be any further. Anyway, um, he had a crush on Jennifer Aniston. Yeah, sure, didn't we all? Damn, um, yeah. And uh, it wasn't requited. Apparently. That's he... something I have in common with him then. Yeah, well, look, Jennifer Aniston's Jennifer Aniston. Um uh, she sounds like uh, she she sounds like somebody who knows how to keep it together. Uh, she sounds uh, like uh, quite a a powerhouse of a woman, and I mm -hmm. suspect she is. But this isn't about her. Um, back to the old fundamental questions: Is it well written? Did he write it? And is it a good read? He did write it. He is a writer anyway, and it is a great read. Um, and um, uh, when I say it's a car crash, I mean, I just feel so sorry for this guy. Uh, and and I shouldn't feel sorry for somebody who makes a million quid a week. And, you know, me having started out in life as an actor and, um, you know, not having really made it as an actor, I should uh, uh, be fantastically resentful of anyone who is that successful. But uh, I'm not resentful of him at all. And um, No, I mean, obviously really there's, like... there's always a temptation to think... Poor little rich guy, but yeah. um, you know it's a bit too because there's a there's that begrudging streak in all of us. There is, but I don't feel any of that to him. He was absolutely brilliant in the show, and uh, as I say, I pray for this man. Of course, how has he finally found sobriety? Well, God came into the room, um, and literally he had a, a God flash moment, which apparently quite a lot of people do who suffer from dreadful uh, addiction. And uh, slowly but surely, he, he managed to wean himself off whatever he was off. And now he is uh, a believer. He is an absolute believer. He may well be a believer, but we don't yet know that he's uh, cured. No, it's far too soon to say. And judging by the book, if I was a betting man, I wouldn't be putting mm -hmm. money on him. for yeah. I, I'd be putting money on him to get back on stuff. Uh, and that's a terrible thing to say, but... It is a uh, terrible thing to say. I hope he doesn't. I really hope he doesn't. Um, what it's got in common with uh, Bono's book is they're both talking about kind of things, lives that they can't quite have. Bono, on the one hand, is talking about finding the silence within type thing uh, and not being so concerned about what's going on elsewhere and not feeling the constant need to uh, prove himself and all the rest of it, whereas this guy is obviously talking about having... Uh, normal, uh, happy, stable family life with kids and with a wife and all the rest of it. Uh, so there is a sense of that they're both hankering after something yeah. that they can't can't quite get. And um, uh, you know, Bono calls it surrender. Uh, your man calls it sobriety. Um, it's uh, it's interesting. That is interesting. Bono also talks about God coming into the room quite a lot in his book as well, but in, in for different reasons, for reasons of, um, uh, I think the producer, Quincy Jones, uh, refers to that. And I presume when God walks into the room, what he means is, is this music that just sounded okay now, uh, it just has exploded in this flash of wonderful... Uh, I suppose more prosaically, you could say something clicked. Or, yeah, something yeah. clicked, yeah. Yeah. Um, 
and or a miracle, um, I suppose. Um, but yeah, something clicked. Uh, and uh, it's interesting that he, he talks about that because Bono actually says around the time of Thoration, he said he kind of lost his faith. He didn't feel faith. So again, just grappling with the internal uh, uh, battles. But we all have them. And um, we do, I suppose. Not, not we don't have them as publicly as uh, as as some of these characters do. But uh, that doesn't make them any less uh, valid or any less um, intimate if they're if they're written about skillfully. Yeah, and both books are well written, and uh, I would recommend Matthew Perry's book. But it just, as I say, I, I can't use any other word to describe a car crash, and he actually did crash his car when he was out of the box as well. Well, I suppose that's probably the least of his worries. Um, but... Into some wound up in somebody's living room. Ah. <laughs> um, it's interesting, by the way, just the, the sheer disposability of money that he has. Mm-hmm. The amount of people that are on his payroll who are trying to get him drugs. You know, when you run out of, um, of, of when you run out of ca- pharmacists to get him drugs, yeah. then, then you had to kind of go on the black market for to fix it, man. Or indeed, raid other people's houses. Yeah, yeah, and uh, um, but that 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 is also interesting because it, it it just speaks of where uh, the lives of the rich and famous um, and our regular, ordinary, commonplace lives do actually converge in the in the sort of the the nether regions of 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 failure and collapse I, I don't know if i'm putting that very clearly but what i mean is when it comes down to it we're all the same yes well and in fact some some are more connected to their own human failings than mm. possibly more conventional uh, people or non-creative people who have got this capacity to not have to endure themselves in quite the same way and these impulses um, and Bono makes one great point in his book which is the very thing that propelled you along and made you a huge success in your 30s and 40s are, are not what you need uh, towards in the second half of your life yeah I think that that's that's probably been a point that's been made by a lot of people who've been where he is mm. I cannot imagine what it's like to be stratospheric. I know what it was like to be well-known and famous in Ireland um, and people to enjoy what you do and stop you in supermarkets and when you're up the top of hills and all sorts of places. And there's something lovely about that. There is to be recognised. However, it is certainly not the antidote to all of life's problems. And uh, Take your word for it, Gary. Matthew Perry... Uh, found out that friends was not the answer to his problems. It was for a while, and I'd say around that time, if you were looking for a good night out. <laughs> and he's got, yeah. by the way, there's a picture of him on the cover as well, and he looks very healthy. He looks, he looks well. great there, I must say. I mean, he really does look well. So there you are. That's it. That's what I think of both. I would give the Matthew Perry book probably a 7.5 out of 10. I'd give the Bonham book an 8 out of 10. Uh, I recommend them both, and I have nothing more to say on the issue. Well, listen, Gary, I think that's enough. And um, uh, nicely said, uh, I think we have two recommendations for Christmas there. I'm not quite sure who's actually running this podcast now. Am I, am I saying goodbye to the listeners, or are you? Uh, well, it's goodbye from me. That's goodbye from me. 2022, and we'll see you again in 2023. And this show was um, produced by Conor O'Hagan. It was presented by Conor O'Hagan and me, Gary Cook. And it was sponsored by our sponsors, Specsavers, Durophones and Expressway. And happy, happy Christmas. Christmas to all. And sundry.